From Osiris Media, this is Beautiful Garbage, a look at how America unleashed punk rock on the world. I'm Kevin Hogan. We will be tracing the development of punk rock from American bars and garages to England in the mid to late 70s and back, looking at the important figures in their work. Today, in Episode 5, From Dead to Worse, we will look at how America's Dead Boys in England's Sex Pistols exemplified punk in its most recognizable form, and how Malcolm McLaren, who took the fashion, sound, and attitude of American underground music, turned England into the face of punk rock in the late 70s. As 1976 started, the Ramones were standing on the verge of taking their version of punk rock to the world. Their first LP would hit English shelves in April, and in July they would storm England with two concerts that launched punk in earnest. If that Ramones record hadn't existed, I don't know that we could have built a scene here, because it fulfilled a vital gap, if you like, between the death of the old pub rocking scene and the advent of punk. They also met a band that would become the Dead Boys, America's answer to the newly formed English band the Sex Pistols on a tour stop in Cleveland. The band, Frankenstein, at Joey Ramone's urging, moved to New York City in 1976. We formed in January 75, but we didn't get here till July 76 because no one had a roadmap. We didn't know how to get here. Cheetah Chrome and Johnny Blitz had enlisted singer Stiv Baders, second guitarist Jimmy Zero, and bassist Jeff Magnum. Followed you guys and Stiv did his famous surfing trick on the freeway on the way up. Well, there. that was the first time we met the Ramones. We met them. They played the Tomorrow Club. It was the Youngstown. We all went down to that, and they needed to get to the highway, so he said, "Follow us." And uh, so we followed. You know, they followed us. And the next thing I know, Stiv's going all the world, and you know, he's out on the roof, you know, his butt out, you know. It just happened way more. It's amazing didn't get killed, you know, the law of averages was against We were too real for him, so we came up here and found an audience. Joey Ramone helped us get booked into CBGB's, and uh, from the time we played CBGB's, it's been downhill from then, you know. Them in Youngstown, Stiv uh, stayed in touch, and uh, you know Joey lied to Hilly and said, you know, I've seen these guys; they're great. He'd never seen us. He'd seen like a video with no sound. He helped make arrangements for our first gigs. When we got there, he, you know, showed, showed us around the neighborhoods, uh, and told us where we could get an apartment and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, he definitely, you know, got us up there.
year and a half ago we just got together, came to New York and got a recording contract. And here we are, <laughs> right? Just as rock and roll was born out of an economic boom after World War II, punk was born out of an economic collapse and the anger of being worse off than your parents with no hope for a future. 1,500,000 people unemployed being paid out of the public purse that we don't do something. What sets us apart from the other generations before us of working class people is we had absolutely no illusions. We knew it was a rigged game. People are sick and fed up of this country, telling them what to do. Fighting and looting went on well into the night, being publicly worried about the event and setting out to control it. Well, I can't see any future, really, not for the children, not the way it is now. There's just no future in it for any of us. Piss poor options. Bugger all, zero. You'll go nowhere, you will. That was hummed into you from day one at schools and institutions. Well, I mean, if there was jobs and they wouldn't be on the dole, maybe we'd be singing about love and kissing or something. Just remember those years as being incredibly violent. It's violent in a way which it isn't now. And you had that sense of the streets not being safe. The anger created a youth culture in England that was crying out for the power of a band like the Ramones or the Heartbreakers. The first rumblings of a coming revolution can be found in 1975 when guitarist Mick Jones joined a rotating cast of musicians and hanger-ons in hopes of forming a band. The precursor to punk in London uh, was this very sort of grassroots collective of bands, not all of whom perhaps were best mates necessarily, but they were all playing grassroots, stripped-down rock and roll. Um, I was with a band myself and um, one of my guitarists, Martin Stone, was in a London SS, a famous early prototype of punk. And he kept coming back to me and saying, all the guys talk about is clothes, how tight their trousers are and stuff like this. I thought, well, you must be in your element. He said, yeah, but let's get some music too, you know. They played a harder version of pub rock, but never played live, and aside from a demo, never recorded. What makes them so important are the members who were in and out of the band. Generation X, The Damned, and of course, The Clash all had members in the SS. In 1975, by Mick Jones and uh, Tony James, they were into the New York Dolls. They were into what was happening in America. They were uh, they were into kind of 60s garage punk. It was, it was like really cool. It was it was a point um, at that time. Sort of no one was listening to this stuff. I mean, it wasn't. It's not like now where where everybody's got a Stooges record or, or an MC5. So London SS played, rehearsed, never did a gig, never really found a singer. On the recordings, it's mixed singing. The recording was made in front of Malcolm and Bernie. But we didn't really have our own songs, a couple of early flash ones maybe. And when Paul walked in, he just looked amazing, you know what I mean? He just didn't, didn't look like anybody else. We borrowed a bass off Tony, and then we took the strings off and we painted in like, pink nail varnish or paint uh, the notes 
on the on the neck of the guitar. And that was like the first uh, Paul Simonon School of Music. And then we put them back on and I would just shout out, G, it's G, across the room, you know what I mean? And we sort of started to play together. And just coincided at that time that, um, you know, and we decided sort of very casually to go our own, our own ways at that time. And uh, we both remained really close friends. We didn't have a row or anything. We just sort of went off and tried some things with different guys. At the same time, what is known as pop rock, a reactionary back-to-basics sound that sprung up in response to the same corporatization of music the CBGB scene was rebelling against, was popular in London. Bands like Dr. Feelgood were the face of this underground scene and could best be described as part of the mod tradition dating back to England in the mid-60s. It felt as though things were going to speed up. A very important part of this was Dr. Feelgood, who I saw several times that year, and they were terrific and they were very tough and aggressive and speedy. McLaren had been back in England for a while, still enthralled by the excitement around American punk. The problem, in Malcolm's eyes, was a band like The Jam was just rehashing an old look, and he wanted something shocking and new. His answer was found in the fetish wear he had been selling for two years, combined with the look he saw in New York's Bowery, and exemplified by Richard Hell. It was a strange feeling of knowing that a lot of the stuff that was going on in England had originated in New York and, and that we'd created. Um, but at the same time, they were trying to set themselves apart from us. In England, fashion and music are inexorably linked. The mods, the rude boys, teddy boys and skinheads all had their own uniform, so everyone knew what tribe you belonged to. It was a huge popular movement in, in England. In, in America, it was New York, whereas in England, um, it was massive. It was the headline news all the time, and it was a whole different culture. But there were Teddy Boys and rock and roll, I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis and that booming out for all the time, right into, uh, through all kind of eras. England was the perfect breeding ground, too, because there were all these kids with nothing to do. The move by McLaren and Westwood from selling Teddy Boys fashion, and by extension mod culture at their London boutique, to what would be more in line with the punk scene that would emerge in the late 70s is the delineation of punk and new wave in England, much like Helen Verlaine in America, ultimately creating hardcore and new wave.
That was really super influential as well. In April of 1976, the revolution had begun with the Ramones' first LP surfacing across the pond. If that Ramones record hadn't existed, I don't know that we could have built a scene here because it fulfilled a vital gap, if you like, between the death of the old pub rocking scene and the advent of punk. We were all people who had always dreamed of making music, but um, the right circumstances never seemed to be there and bit by bit this scene sort of created the right circumstance and one of the things that drew us all together had a lot to do with the shop that Malcolm McLaren uh, had started to this sort of sadomasochist store called Sex. And by May of that year McLaren's degenerate crew the Sex Pistols were in the studio laying down a sketch of what would become their philosophy. Included was the hell-inspired Pretty Vacant. clothes themselves and the fashion dominated everything and I think in many respects the clothes and the attitude dominated and carried on long after the groups disappeared. The look with music would be great if it could work but what music and again as destructive as those clothes were of the common way of going about looking, the music had to relate to it. While the Dead Boys were an organic synthesis of what had come before them, from Iggy and the Dolls to Richard Hell and the Ramones, the Sex Pistols were created to sell clothes and push McLaren's anarchist tendencies. In a club, would only ultimately uh, ring in people's ears and create a scene, a scene that was I suppose very negative, but in its negativity, in terms, of, in terms of not associating itself with anything good, created a chaos in an audience who could dress up to mess up, enjoy the chaos, and make sure very clearly that it's their own. And it was so, it, there was obviously a whole generation of people empathizing with that look, and then it became much more polished. And then, of course, um, Malcolm and Vivian were kind of commercializing that. And it went beyond really what you're doing as far as becoming very politically, no, that's, politically that's, uh, violent. Safety pins through their they cheeks. They didn't do those things. There were those bands that wanted to play rock music too. It's just uh, uh, a fashion started from clothes stores, and uh, the public just media just picked up on a few assorted people. And the young customers possibly just thought, wow, this is, this is the look, not knowing that something might have been four or five years old. Suddenly you've got guys walking around in new bondage trousers with a pair of brothel creepers from the, from the Let It Rock shop, and maybe a studded t-shirt from Too Fast To Live, Too Young To Die. 
Iggy Pop was completely crucial to the punk movement musically. His lyrics, his attitude to drugs, the way he used guitars and his voice, fantastically important to Malcolm. Malcolm and I had researched street fashion to such an extent that we actually invented one of our own. We'd been so interested in cults that we invented a cult of our own and that was punk rock. And no one saw that until the Sex Pistols. Malcolm had been grooming the band, recruiting two customers, Paul Cook and Steve Jones, who had been in a band called The Strand, along with an employee bassist, Glenn Matlock, to provide the music. They just needed a charismatic frontman to give the band a face. They found him in John Lydon, and with that, McLaren's Sex Pistols were born. kind of store where you could go in and just hang out. I got talking to Malcolm, we became kind of friends, but I was stealing clothes off him as well at the same time, you know. And I used to steal a lot of band's equipment and he said, why don't you uh, learn to play some of this stuff and uh, get a band together? So that's what I did. I was spotted on King's Road in a I hate Pink Floyd t-shirt. I personalised it myself. Uh, that at the time, I know it seems hard to believe now when you look back on it, but that was just about the most insulting thing you could ever do. We said, can you sing? He said, no, but I can scream and shout, blah, blah, blah. I said, come back to the shop. And uh, there was a jukebox in the corner. So I put the song on. John was at the other end. We all stood by the jukebox and watched as he performed, looking and behaving like the hunchback of Notre Dame. And that's actually how we got our sound. I couldn't play and Johnny Rotten couldn't sing. In November of 1975, they played their first gigs and for the next year would have the most productive live output of their short existence, playing close to 100 shows and evolving their sound from what could be best described as bad pub rock to the punk that they are known to the world for. President and Mrs. Ford meet a very special visitor. 200 years after the Declaration of Independence, a British monarch comes to America as an honored guest and a good friend. It has grown and prospered down the years. It has brought with it benefits beyond measure to our peoples. May it long continue to flourish for the sake of both our countries and for the greater good of mankind. As America celebrated its bicentennial and the Queen visited the President, the Ramones were staging an invasion of England and played two shows on July 4th and 5th, 1976. When the Ramones were signed and, and they went to the UK, 
and all these bar bands like the Clash and Sex Pistols and uh, who were playing in bars um, really brought the emphasis of punk rock into uh, the UK and I think it came basically from here. Everyone who was in a kind of band, who was going to be in one of the, the UK punk bands was there at the show. I think there must have been about 60 people in the audience, which is like sort of nobody, but everyone formed a band, you know. They kick-started the whole thing in a, in a big way. There were Stranglers, the Pistols, and The Clash, The Damned. Hi everybody, it's great to be here tonight. Happy 4th of July. John Rodden, I didn't know who he was. He's trying to come in on a side door. He says he wants to meet the band, but he's afraid. He's asking me if he comes in and meets the band, will they beat him up? Everybody thinks that the Ramones are a gang from the Bronx or something like that. The first night, T-Rex leader Mark Boland joined the Ramones on stage. The Dams, Rat Scabies, and the Adverts Gay Advert were in the audience. The next night, the Sex Pistols, Chrissy Hind, who would go on to form the Pretenders, and members of The Clash were all in attendance. The Clash, who had played their first gig the night before opening for the Sex Pistols, would become the most important band in punk history. After the London SS dissolved, Mick Jones set out to build his next band, and along with manager Bernard Rhodes began to audition people. Keith Levine was drafted as second guitarist, and soon London SS alum Paul Simonon was asked to join on bass. So he did this audition. I think it was a, it was a gay vicar that ran this place, and they got the, the room for free sort of thing. I don't know how. So I came down early. Nobody's ever showed. And it turned out that, uh, you know, there was no one else there. I did the thing. They liked me anyway. We, we got on really well. And the rest is history, as they say. I was in the band. There was a rotating cast of drummers. But what was really missing was a charismatic frontman. They found him in Joe Strummer, singing with a pub rock band named the 101ers. They were popular at the time and had even recorded a single, Keys to Your Heart. Rhodes approached Strummer after a 101ers gig and asked him if he was interested in stopping by and playing with Mick and Keith. And how did you get to play? I was in a group with him, right? And we met him in the street, right? And we said to him, we don't like your group, right? And he said, I kind of agree with you. And by that, it was a Saturday and on the Monday he joined our group. The scene was so tiny at that time and that uh, I'd started to run adverts in Melody Maker. I'd met Mick Jones. We got in incredibly well because we were both reading Diary of a Rock and Roll Star by Ian Hunter. They added Terry Trimes on drums and The Clash was born. Keith Levine soon left and never recorded with the band. Close on their heels, the dam also formed in 1976 with vocalist Dave Vanian, guitarist Brian James, 
bassist and later guitarist, Captain Sensible, and drummer, Rat Scabies, they had the distinction of being the first punk band to have a single in England, 1976's New Rose. Is she really going out with him? Scabies and James had played in the London SS with Mick Jones before forming the Damned. As the year closed, they would also be one of the four bands on the ill-fated Anarchy Tour, but ultimately left punk to help create goth rock. I don't know why, I don't know why. I guess these things have got to be. I've got a new rose, I've got a good. Yes, I knew that, I always would. I can't stop to mess around. i got a brand new rose in town. Suddenly I was introduced to Brian by Rat, who was on the drums at the time, and I ended up auditioning for the Damned. But he came into the band after the, there was no bass player in this other band, and uh, Rat brought him down because they were great friends. And I can remember Malcolm McLaren saying, What do you want this guy for? He's a fucking hippie. Because he looked just like Mark Bolan at the time. We, we went back to sort of three minutes, and we were young with a no sense and a lot of anger and a lot of energy and, and people don't realise without the social system in England you know there would be no music scene because it wasn't only us it was every other generation. You had Malcolm McLaren's more contrived Sex Pistols and he was you know busy trying to be the Simon Cowell of the period. That was the uh, attitude he had. He'd had this uh, shop in the King's Road very much into fashion very much into what was going to sell. He had a, he had a fairly commercial attitude, un, unlike us at the time, who really just wanted to be disruptive. Uh, he, he wants kick-ass musicians into, you know, MC5 and Stooges and something like that anyway. And the next day he came to work at eight in the, eight in the morning, his hair completely gone. And I thought, blimey, what sort of band is this? Because in 76, if you had short hair, I mean, no girl would look at you. Chris said to me, uh, he's looking for a bass player. And I thought, Christ, I'm going nowhere near that bloke. He's going to chop my hair off. <laughs> I did actually go up to, to see what was going on, and Brian played, played me a bunch of tunes uh, on, on his guitar, and I thought, wow, this, he's really got something. And he, he, was, he, he was obviously a visionary. He, he knew something was coming, and and he had the key to whatever it was. I mean, and he was absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was talking about punk rock. He never used the P word, but um, you know, his the songs were phenomenal. And um, I had to join the band. And uh, you know, sure enough, I went back home. My hair chopped off is the wisest decision I ever made. Released on October twenty second, nineteen seventy six. It was a full month before the Sex Pistols released their Anarchy in the UK single. The reason being that the dam recorded with an independent label called Stiff. An indie label like Stiff Records was the punk way to go, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't see... That, that's, of course, how we uh, managed to beat all the rest of them to having the first punk single, because they were waiting for the big dosh. The Pistols waited to sign with EMI, which they did on October 7th. It was a two-year contract, netting McLaren a 40,000-pound advance, and within two weeks were recording their first single, 
which was released on November 26th of that year. Malcolm around this time started a series of publicity stunts to promote the band, and they landed on a daytime talk show hosted by Bill Grundy, who prodded Steve Jones to say fuck, thrusting them into the national consciousness. And then we was rehearsing for the Anarchy tour, and then we got this call to go and do the Bill Grundy show. What about you girls behind? Are you, uh, are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought you were doing. I always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. We'll meet afterwards, shall we? <laughs> yeah. You dirty yeah. son. Yeah. You dirty <laughs> old man. Well, keep going, Chief. Keep going. <laughs> Go on, you've got another five you seconds. Say something outrageous. You dirty bastard. Go on, again. <laughs> you dirty f. What a clever boy. What a f. Yeah. Well, that's it for tonight. Immediately after that show, he was saying, You've ruined everything. You've blown everything I've been working for until you woke up the next day and saw the newspaper headlines, every news, national newspaper going berserk, and you realise this is the best thing that ever happened. I just remember this fucking cunt just started provoking us, and we coated him off. And then the next day, instead of Malcolm having to call up everybody and get him interested in our band, the Fleet Street were knocking on his door. You know, and it just changed overnight. As innocuous as it seems, it was basically the end of the band's ability to play in England for the time, as seen on their ill-fated Anarchy tour in December of that year. Along with the Pistols, the Damned, the Heartbreakers, and the Clash, they only played seven of the 23 gigs that had been booked. The committee have decided that the concert of the Sex Pistols, they will not perform here tonight, but we are quite agreeable that the three of the groups that have already been booked will go on. It was just pandemonium. Nobody would let us play. They were trying to censor us. We had to go to the shows to... Well, hey, we wouldn't be browbeaten by these old fuddy-duddies that, you know, to try and censor us. If the kids want to buy the record, it's called Anarchy in the UK, it's out in the shops, they can make their own decisions. And their mothers, they can ask them to equally make their decision about it. I think it's, dis well, it's degrading and disgusting. Terrible, I think it is. I think it's disgusting. It's, well, it's lowering the standard of our people in Capilli. Uh, i got teenage daughters and uh, youngsters. They want to write the Rod Stewart, but I wouldn't let them go to see this rubbish. Every young kid is being, uh, is in, uh, finds enjoyment in being known as revolting. But as much as this was the beginning of the end for the Pistols, it was a launching point for the Damned and the Clash, as well as the impetus for the Heartbreakers' only LP, LAMF. In our final episode, Sid joins the Pistols as they embark on a pseudo-world tour that would tear the band apart by January 1978. While the Dead Boys find a similar fate, and the Clash are left as the only band that matters.
People are sick and fed up of this country, telling them what to do. I'm Kevin Hogan, and this is Beautiful Garbage, presented by Osiris Media. For more podcasts that connect you deeply to the music you love, check out OsirisPod.com. Osiris.